Book Five of the Spirit of the Laws, Chapters Fourteen to Nineteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Gittens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Second, Baron de Montesquieu, translated by Thomas Nugent. Book five, that the laws given by the legislator ought to be in relation to the principle of government. Chapter fourteen. In what manner the laws are in relation to the principles of despotic government. The principle of despotic government is fear. But a timid, ignorant, and faint spirit people have no occasion for a great number of laws. Everything ought to depend here on two or three ideas. Hence, there is no necessity that any new notions should be added. When we want to break a horse, we take care not to let him change his master, his lesson, or his pace. Thus, an impression is made on his brain by two or three motions, and no more. If a prince is shut up in Serigalio, he cannot leave his voluptuous abode without alarming those who keep him confined. They will not bear that his person and power should pass into other hands. He seldom, therefore, wages war in person, and hardly ventures to entrust the command to his generals. A prince of this stamp, unaccustomed to resistance in his palace, is enraged to see his will opposed by armed force. Hence, he is generally governed by wrath or vengeance. Besides, he can have no notion of true glory. War, therefore, is carried on under such a government in its full natural fury, and less extent is given to the law of nations than in other states. Such a prince has so many imperfections that they are afraid to expose his natural stupidity to public view. He is concealed in his palace, and the people are ignorant of his situation. It is lucky for him that the inhabitants of those countries need only the name of a prince to govern them. When Charles Seven was at Bender, he met with some opposition from the Senate of Sweden, upon which he wrote word home that he would send one of his boots to command them. This boot would have governed like a despotic prince. If the prince is a prisoner, he is supposed to be dead, and another mounts the throne. The treaties made by the prisoner are void. His successor will not ratify them. And indeed, as he is the law, the state, and the prince, when he is no longer a prince, he is nothing. Were he not therefore deemed to be deceased, the state would be subverted. One thing which chiefly determined the Turks to conclude a separate peace with Peter I was the Muscovites telling the Vizar that in Sweden another prince had been placed upon the throne. The preservation of the state is only the preservation of the prince, or rather of the palace where he is confined. Whatever does not directly menace this palace or the capital makes no impression on ignorant, proud, and prejudiced minds. And as for the concatenation of events, they are unable to trace, to foresee, or even to conceive it. Politics, 
with its feveral fprings and laws, muft here be very much limited ; the political government is as fimple as the civil. The whole is reduced to reconciling the political and civil adminiftration to the domeftic government, the offices of ftate to thofe of the feraglio. Such a ftate is happieft, when it can look upon itfelf as the only one in the world ; when it is environed with defarts, and feparated from thofe people whom they call barbarians. Since it cannot depend on the militia, it is proper it fhould deftroy a part of itfelf. As fear is the principle of defpotic government, its end is tranquillity ; but this tranquillity cannot be called a peace ; no, it is only the filence of thofe towns which the enemy is ready to invade. Since the ftrength does not lie in the ftate, but in the army that founded it, in order to defend the ftate, the army muft be preferved how formidable foever to the prince. How then can we reconcile the fecurity of the government to that of the prince's perfon? Obferve how induftriously the Ruffian government endeavours to temper its arbitrary power, which it finds more burdenfome than the people themfelves. They have broken their numerous guards, mitigated criminal punifhments, erected tribunals, entered into a knowledge of the laws, and inftrufted the people. But there are particular caufes that will probably once more involve them in the very misery which they now endeavour to avoid. In thofe ftates religion has more influence than anywhere else. It is fear added to fear. In Mohammedan countries it is partly from their religion that the people derive the surprising veneration they have for their prince. It is religion that amends, in fome meafure, the Turkifh conftitution. The fubjeds, who have no attachment of honour to the glory and grandeur of the ftate, are connected with it by the force and principle of religion. Of all defpotic governments, there is none that labours more under its own weight than that wherein the prince declares himfelf proprietor of all the lands and heir to all his fubjeds. Hence the negleft of agriculture arifes, and if the prince intermeddles likewife in trade, all manner of induftry is ruined. Under this fort of government nothing is repaired or improved. Houfes are built only for the neceffity of habitation. There is no digging of ditches or planting of trees. Everything is drawn from, but nothing restored to the earth. The ground lies untilled, and the whole country becomes a desert. Is it to be imagined that the laws which abolish the property of land and the succession of estates will diminish the avarice and cupidity of the great? By no means. They will rather stimulate this cupidity and avarice. The great men will be prompted to use a thousand oppressive methods, imagining they have no other property than the gold and silver which they are able to seize upon by violence or to conceal. To prevent, therefore, the utter ruin of the state, the avidity of the prince ought to be moderated by some established custom. Thus, in Turkey, the sovereign is satisfied with the right of three percent of the value of inheritances. But as he gives the greatest part of the lands to his soldiery, and disposes of them as he pleases, 
as he feizes on all the inheritances of the officers of the empire at their decease, as he has the property of the poffeffions of thofe who die without iffue, and the daughters have only the ufufruft, it thence follows that the greateft part of the eftates of the country are held in a precarious manner. By the laws of Bantam, the king feizes on the whole inheritance, even wife, children, and habitation. In order to elude the cruellest part of this law, they are obliged to marry their children at eight, nine, or ten years of age, and sometimes younger, to the end that they may not be a wretched part of the father's succession. In countries where there are no fundamental laws, the succession to the empire cannot be fixed. The crown is then elective, and the right of electing is in the prince, who names a successor either of his own or of some other family. In vain would it be to establish here the succession of the eldest son. The prince might always choose another. The successor is declared by the prince himself, or by a civil war. Hence a despotic state is, upon another account, more liable than a monarchical government to dissolution. As every prince of the royal family is held equally capable of being chosen, Hence it follows that the prince who ascends the throne immediately strangles his brothers, as in Turkey, or puts out their eyes, as in Persia, or bereaves them of their understanding, as in the Mughal's country, or if these precautions are not used, as in Morocco, the vacancy of the throne is always attended with the horrors of a civil war. By the constitution of Russia, the Caesar may choose whom he has a mind for his successor, whether of his own or of a strange family. Such a settlement produces a thousand revolutions and renders the throne as tottering as the succession is arbitrary. The right of succession being one of those things which are of most importance to the people to know, the best is that which most sensibly strikes them, such as certain order of birth. A settlement of this kind puts a stop to intrigues and stifles ambition. The mind of a weak prince is no longer enslaved, nor is he made to speak his will as he is just expiring. When the succession is established by a fundamental law, only one prince is the successor, and his brothers have neither a real nor apparent right to dispute the crown with him. They can neither pretend to nor take any advantage of the will of a father. There is then no more occasion to confine or kill the king's brother than any other subject. But in despotic governments, where the prince's brothers are equally his slaves and his rivals, prudence requires that their persons be secured, especially in Mohammedan countries, where religion considers victory or success as a divine decision in their favour so that they should have no such thing as a monarch de jure, but only de facto. There is a far greater incentive to ambition in countries where the princes of the blood are sensible that if they do not ascend the throne, they must be either imprisoned or put to death, than among us, where they are placed in such a station as may satisfy, if not their ambition, at least their moderate desires. The princes of despotic governments have ever perverted the use of marriage. They generally take a great many wives, 
efpecially in that part of the world where abfolute power is in fome meafure naturalized, namely Afia. Hence they come to have fuch a multitude of children, that they can hardly have any great affection for them, nor the children for one another. The reigning family refembles the ftate. It is too weak itfelf, and its head too powerful. It feems very numerous and extenfive, and yet is suddenly extinct. Artaxerxes put all his children to death for conspiring against him. It is not at all probable that fifty children would conspire against their father, and much less that this conspiracy would be owing to his having refused to resign his concubine to his eldest son. It is more natural to believe that the whole was an intrigue of those oriental serigalios, where fraud, treachery, and deceit reign in silence and darkness, and where an old prince, grown every day more infirm, is the first prisoner of the palace. After what has been said, one would imagine that human nature should perpetually rise up against despotism, but notwithstanding the love of liberty, so natural to mankind, notwithstanding their innate detestation of force and violence, most nations are subject to this very government. This is easily accounted for. To form a moderate government, it is necessary to combine the several powers, to regulate, temper, and set them in motion, to give, as it were, ballast to one, in order to enable it to counterpoise the other. This is a masterpiece of legislation, rarely produced by hazard, and seldom attained by prudence. On the contrary, a despotic government offers itself, as it were, at first sight. It is uniform throughout, and as passions are only requisite to establish it, this is what every capacity may reach. Chapter 15. The same subject continued. In warm climates, where despotic power generally prevails, the passions disclose themselves earlier and are soon extinguished. The understanding is soon ripened. They are less in danger of squandering their fortunes. There is less facility of distinguishing themselves in the world. Less communication between young people who are confined at home. They marry much earlier and consequently may be sooner of age than in our European climates. In Turkey, they are of age at 15. They have no such thing as a cession of goods. In a government where there is no fixed property, people depend rather on the person than on his estate. The cession of goods is naturally admitted in moderate governments, but especially in republics, because of the greater confidence usually placed in the probity of the citizens, and the lenity and moderation arising from a form of government which every subject seems to knave preferred to all others. Had the legislators of the Roman Republic established the cession of goods, they never would have been exposed to so many seditions and civil discords. Neither would they have experienced the danger of the evils, nor the inconvenience of the remedies. Poverty and the precariousness of property in a despotic state render ushery natural. Each person raising the value of his money in proportion to the danger he sees in lending it. 
Mifery, therefore, pours from all parts into thofe unhappy countries ; they are bereft of every thing, even of the refource of borrowing. Hence it is that a merchant under this government is unable to carry on an extenfive commerce ; he lives from hand to mouth ; and were he to encumber himfelf with a large quantity of merchandize, he would lofe more by the exorbitant intereft he muft give for the money, than he could poffibly get by the goods. Hence they have no laws here relating to commerce ; they are all reduced to what is called the bare police. A government cannot be unjuft, without having hands to exercife its injuftice. Now it is impoffible but that thefe hands will be grafping for themfelves. The embezzling of the public money is therefore natural in defpotic ftates. As this is a common crime under fuch a government, confifcations are very ufeful. By thefe the people are eafed, the money drawn by this method being a confiderable tribute which could hardly be raifed on the exhaufted fubjeft. Neither is there in thofe countries any one family which the prince would be glad to preferve. In moderate governments it is quite a different thing. Confifcations would render property uncertain, would ftrip innocent children, would deftroy a whole family, inftead of punifhing a fingle criminal. In republics they would be attended with the mifchief of fubverting equality, which is the very foul of this government, by depriving a citizen of his neceffary fubfiftence. There is a Roman law againft confifcations, except in the case of crimen majeftatis, or high treafon of the moft heinous nature. It would be a prudent thing to follow the fpirit of this law, and to limit confifcations to particular crimes. In countries where a local cuftom has rendered real eftate alienable, Bowden very juftly obferves that confifcations fhould extend only to fuch as are purchafed or acquired. CHAPTER Sixteen, Of the Communication of Power In a despotic government the power is communicated entire to the person entrusted with it. The vizier himself is the despotic prince, and each particular officer is the vizier. In monarchies the power is less immediately applied, being tempered by the monarch as he gives it. He makes such a distribution of his authority as never to communicate a part of it without reserving a greater share to himself. Hence in monarchies the governors of towns are not so dependent on the governor of the province as not to be still more so on the prince, and the private officers or military bodies are not so far subject to their general as not to owe still a greater subjection to their sovereign. In most monarchies it has been wisely regulated that those who have an extensive command should not belong to any military corps, so that as they have no authority but through the prince's pleasure, and as they may be employed or not, they are in some measure in the service, and in some measure out of it. This is incompatible with a despotic government, for if those who are not actually employed were still invested with privileges and titles, the consequence must be that there would be men in the state who might be said to be great of themselves, a thing directly opposite to the nature of this government. 
were the governor of a town independent of the Pafha, expedients would be daily neceflary to make them agree ; which is highly abfurd in a defpotic ftate. Befides, if a particular governor fliould refufe to obey, how could the other anfwer for his province with his head ? In this kind of government authority muft ever be wavering ; nor is that of the lowcft magiftrate more fteady than that of the defpotic prince. Under moderate governments the law is prudent in all its parts, and perfedly well known ; fo that even the pettieft magiftrates are capable of following it. But in a defpotic ftate, where the prince's will is the law, though the prince were wife, yet how could the magiftrate follow a will he does not know ? He muft certainly follow his own. Again, as the law is only the prince's will, and as the prince can only will what he knows, the confequence is that there are an infinite number of people who muft will for him, and make their wills keep pace with his. In fine, as the law is the momentary will of the prince, it is neceflary that thofe who will for him fhould follow his fudden manner of willing. CHAPTER XVII. Of Prefents. It is a received cuftom in defpotic countries never to addrefs any fuperior whomfoever, not excepting their kings, without making them a prefent. The Mogul never receives the petitions of his fubjeds if they come with empty hands. Thefe princes fpoil even their own favours. But this it muft ever be in a government where no man is a citizen, where they have all a notion that a fuperior is under no obligation to an inferior, where men imagine themfelves bound by no other tie than the chaftifements inflicted by one party upon another, where, in fine, there is very little to do, and where the people have feldom an occafion of prefenting themfelves before the great, of offering their petitions, and much lefs their complaints. In a republic, prefents are odious, because virtue ftands in no need of them. In monarchies, honour is a much ftronger incentive than prefents. But in a defpotic government, where there is neither honour nor virtue, people cannot be determined to aft but through hope of the conveniences of life. It is in conformity with republican ideas that Plato ordered those who received presents for doing their duty to be punished with death. They muft not take presents, says he, neither for good nor for evil actions. A very bad law was that among the Romans, which gave the magistrates leave to accept small presents, provided they did not exceed one hundred crowns in the whole year. They who receive nothing, expect nothing. They who receive a little, soon covet more, till at length their desires swell to an exorbitant height. Besides, it is much easier to convict a man who knows himself obliged to accept no present at all, and yet will accept something, than a person who takes more when he ought to take less, and who always finds pretexts, excuses, and plausible reasons in justification of his conduct. CHAPTER Eighteen, OF REWARDS CONFERRED BY THE SOVEREIGN 
in defpotic governments, where, as we have already obferved, the principal motive of action is the hope of the conveniences of life, the prince who confers rewards has nothing to bestow but money. In monarchies, where honour alone predominates, the prince's rewards would consist only of marks of distinction. If the distinctions established by honour were not attended with luxury, which necessarily brings on its own wants, the prince therefore is obliged to confer such honours as lead to wealth. But in a republic where virtue reigns, a motive self-sufficient, and which excludes all others, the recompenses of the state consist only of public attestations of this virtue. It is a general rule that great rewards in monarchies and republics are a sign of their decline, because they are a proof of their principles being corrupted, and that the idea of honour has no longer the same force in a monarchy, nor the title of citizen the same weight in a republic. The very worst Roman emperors were those who were the most profuse in their largesses. For example, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Otho, Vitellius, Commodus, Heliogabalus, and Caracalla. The best, as Augustus, Vespasian, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius, and Pertinax, were economists. Under good emperors, the state resumed its principles. All other treasures were supplied by that of honour. Chapter 19. New Consequences of the Principles of the Three Governments I cannot conclude this book without making some applications of my three principles. First question. It is a question whether the laws ought to oblige a subject to accept a public employment. My opinion is that they ought in a republic, but not in a monarchical government. In the former, public employments are attestations of virtue, depositions with which a citizen is entrusted by his country, for whose sake alone he ought to live, to act, and to think, consequently lie cannot refuse them. In the latter, public offices are testimonials of honour. Now such is the capriciousness of honour that it chooses to accept none of these testimonies but when and in what manner it pleases. The late king of Sardinia inflicted punishments on his subjects who refused the dignities and public offices of the state. In this he unknowingly followed republican ideas, but his method of governing in other respects sufficiently proves that this was not his intention. Second question. Secondly, it is question whether a subject should be obliged to accept a post in the army inferior to that which he held before. Among the Romans, it was usual to see a captain serve the next year under his lieutenant. This is because virtue in republics requires a continual sacrifice of our persons and of our repugnances for the good of the state. But in monarchies, honour, true or false, will never bear with what it calls degrading itself. In despotic governments, where honour, posts and ranks are equally abused, 
they indifcriminately make a prince a fcullion, and a fcullion a prince. Third queftion. Thirdly, it may be inquired whether civil and military employments should be conferred on the fame perfon. In republics I think they should be joined, but in monarchies separated. In the former it would be extremely dangerous to make the profession of arms a particular state distinct from that of civil functions, and in the latter no less dangerous would it be to confer these two employments on the same person. In republics a person takes up arms only with a view to defend his country and its laws. It is because he is a citizen he makes himself for a while a soldier. Were these two distinct states, the person who under arms thinks himself a citizen would soon be made sensible he is only a soldier. In monarchies, they whose condition engages them in the profession of arms have nothing but glory, or at least honour or fortune, in view. To men, therefore like these, the prince should never give any civil employments. On the contrary, they ought to be checked by the civil magistrate, that the same persons may not have at the same time the confidence of the people and the power to abuse it. We have only to cast an eye on a nation that may be justly called a republic, disguised under the form of monarchy, and we shall see how jealous they are of making a separate order of the profession of arms, and how the military state is constantly allied with that of the citizen, and even sometimes of the magistrate, to the end that these qualities may be a pledge for their country, which should never be forgotten. The division of civil and military employments, made by the Romans after the extinction of the Republic, was not an arbitrary thing. It was a consequence of the change which happened in the constitution of Rome. It was natural to a monarchical government, and what was only commenced under Augustus, succeeding emperors were obliged to finish, in order to temper the military government. Procopius, therefore, the competitor of Valens the emperor, was very much to blame when, conferring the proconsular dignity upon Hermistus, a prince of blood royal of Persia, he restored to this magistracy the military command of which it had been formerly possessed, unless indeed he had very particular reasons for doing so. A person that aspires to the sovereignty concerns himself less about what is serviceable to the state than what is likely to promote his own interest. Fourth question. Fourthly, it is a question whether public employments should be sold. They ought not, I think, in despotic governments, where the subjects must be instantaneously placed or displaced by the prince. But in monarchies, this custom is not at all improper. By reason, it is an inducement to engage in that as a family employment which would not be undertaken through a motive of virtue. It fixes, likewise, every one in his duty, and renders the several orders of the kingdom more permanent. Sudaz very justly observes that Anastasius had changed the empire into a kind of aristocracy by selling all public employments. Plato cannot bear with his prostitution, 
This is exactly, says he, as if a person were to be made a mariner or pilot of a ship for his money. Is it possible that this rule should be bad in every other employment of life, and hold good only in the administration of a republic? But Plato speaks of a republic founded on virtue, and we of a monarchy. Now in monarchies were, though there were no such thing as a regular sale of public offices, still the indigence and avidity of the courtier would equally prompt him to expose them to sale. Chance will furnish better subjects than the prince's choice. In short, the method of attaining to honours through riches inspires and cherishes industry, a thing extremely wanting in this kind of government. Fifth question. The fifth question is in what kind of government censors are necessary? My answer is that they are necessary in a republic where the principle of government is virtue. We must not imagine that criminal actions are only destructive of virtue. It is destroyed also by omissions, by neglects, by a certain coolness in the love of our country, by bad examples, and by the seeds of corruption. We must not imagine that criminal actions only are destructive of virtue. Whatever does not openly violate but elude the laws, does not subvert but weaken them, ought to fall under the inquiry and correction of the censors. We are surprised at the punishment of the Arapagite for killing a sparrow which, to escape the pursuit of a hawk, had taken shelter in his bosom. Surprised we are also that an Arapagite should put his son to death for putting out the eyes of a little bird. But let us reflect that the question here does not relate to a criminal sentence, but to a judgment concerning manners in a republic founded on manners. In monarchies there should be no senses. The former are founded on honour, and the nature of honour is to have the whole world for its censor. Every man who fails in this article is subject to the reproaches even of those who are void of honour. Here the censors would be spoiled by the very people whom they ought to correct. They could not prevail against the corruption of a monarchy. The corruption, rather, would be too strong against them. Hence, it is obvious that there ought to be no censors in despotic governments. The example of China seems to derogate from this rule, but we shall see, in the course of this work, the particular reasons of that institution. End of chapter 19 End of book 5 of The Spirit of the Laws